Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. We're going to talk in this session about hope, and then we'll talk in the last one about home. A couple distinctions that we're making between the two things. Number one is that when we're talking about hope, we're talking primarily about a teaching that addresses the soul. So it comes first and stems directly from the gospel. You'll notice that when the New Testament talks about hope, it's right there with faith and love as the outflow of believing in Jesus Christ. So we're starting with hope. The order wasn't random. We're starting with hope because it's going to come directly into the life of the person who is believing the gospel when someone has proclaimed it to him. So it has to do with teaching, with the gospel, with proclamation. When we talk about home, that has to do with life. It's a product, the things that we'll describe, both in the person's soul and in the church's life of the gospel. But it's not coming so directly as hope does. The, the sort of things that are usually discussed in what we'll talk about in the last session that's usually all people talk about when they say, well, what's wrong with the church? Well, you need to be more welcoming. What's wrong with the church? Well, you need to talk to new people. True. But it doesn't, that spirit, that sense, that desire does not come directly out of the gospel. So we want to start with first things first and then talk about second things and third things. Because I think the church has a big difficulty with telling itself what it should do, but never why. Because when you understand why, the doing comes much more naturally. In each session, we're gonna the the two that remain to us. We're gonna talk about first what. Now I now I have a third microphone. Could you guys hear me? Before? Did you was that just all like? It's like I was speaking Chinese. In each session that remains to us, we're going to talk about what, then why, and then how. So we're leaving how for last each time because the how is the absolute most debatable portion of it. I cannot tell you how to communicate the gospel in all the ways that may be available to you, where you live, where you go to church, with the people you know. You will also notice that the Bible says very little about whether you're supposed to have a bake sale to get acquainted with people or whether you should have, like we do at my church, a barbecue every Wednesday night in the summer that people can just come to or whether you should have a new member information class or whatever. The how is the most debatable portion, so we're actually going to say least about it. But we'll start out with the what. What exactly are we communicating when there is hope? We said in the first session that hopelessness is a sense that the future is closed down. Or that if it is open, it is open only for horrors. Only awful things are to come. 
So you have no hope. Even the word itself, hope, has been downgraded from what it means in the Bible. Because when we say hope, usually what we really mean is wish. And anybody, no matter how sad, no matter how addicted, no matter how miserable, could and does have wishes. I wish my life had worked out differently. Or I wish I still had a relationship with my sister. Or I wish whatever. But they're wishes. They're ineffective. They don't really matter. So what are we saying when we talk about hope? Because you may know that the symbol in our churches for hope, if it's on a banner or a paramount hanging from the pulpit or something, is an anchor. Hope is an anchor, which it seems like the opposite thing from a wish. A wish is flimsy. I wouldn't represent a wish by an anchor, maybe pixie dust. I hope it works out, right? But I wouldn't say an anchor. So why do we, when we're talking about hope, have anchors on things? Because when you have a certain sense of the future, like when the 16-year-old knows that he's going to be driving sometime soon, when you have a definite sense of the future, it changes the present. Totally. When you have a definite sense of the future, it totally changes the present. So here's what we're talking about. The gospel directly addresses not only a distant future that's a little hard to understand, like when your body is completely changed, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. But what it creates in you, too, is a different sense of the present. And you know this. Because if you understand the way that your future has already been determined because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that changes your sense of the present. It even changes the way the Bible talks about life and death. It talks about a first death and a second death. Or it talks about being born a second time. Born again or born, word means the same thing in Greek, born from above of water and the spirit, right? In John chapter three. So you were born and then whatever happened and then you're baptized and you're born from above. You got a second birth. And so the one who is born from above, even though he die, yet shall he live. So his whole sense of the future, because he's born from above, has now been completely changed. Because he's not looking at the future and thinking, boy, one day I'm going to die. That's going to be it. And it's all over. So I have all the time up to when I die, and then it's all over. Which is what the Bible would call the natural man, or what we would call the lady that you're looking into her eyes as she hands you the change. That's what the natural man thinks. I live, I live, I live. I enjoy it or I don't. It goes bad or it goes good, whatever. And then I die. 
But you have a different sense of the future because you have been born from above. So when you think about that, what else is happening, right? What else is going on? Maybe you've never quite thought about why does the Bible talk about us and Jesus as first fruits? You might remember that when it talks about Jesus's resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about him as the first fruits of them that sleep. The first fruits. So this is when you have a whole festival, not just for the harvest, but before the harvest, because you're getting going with the harvest. It's just getting started. There's so much more to come. Jesus is the first fruits of them that sleep. So there's so many more who are going to come to everlasting life. There are so many more who are going to be eternally beloved of the Father. So much more to come. First fruits. But it also talks about us as first fruits. In fact, his brother James says it when he talks about being born again, regenerated, born again by the word of truth, which was preached to you. James says that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So that what he's doing in making all things new, in opening up a totally different future that's defined by life instead of death, defined by the second Adam instead of the first one, that Adam was no good. In doing that, we are a first fruits. Not that we are already perfect or we are already never going to die, or we are already experiencing all the things that are laid up for us, but the fact that you believe in him at all is a first fruits of a change that's going to touch everybody. Okay? So the future now is a strange thing because now the future is opened up. Now the future is defined by life and by things that are unknown to us, but known to him. You might know, too, that when Paul talks about the people to whom he preaches, he talks about them as an offering. Like when the Israelites used to harvest a little bit of grain, and then they would bring some of the grain is like a thank offering. They would bring that near the temple and they'd say, thank you for the whole harvest that we have. I'm bringing you a little bit of the harvest to show you my thanks. We do this when maybe in October or November, we're decorating our churches with what are otherwise vegetables and things like that, right? All that zucchini you can't really control and you don't even really want by this time goes into the church. That's not really the idea, by the way, guys. You don't put the zucchini you don't want. You put all the stuff you want. So I would put the key lime pie in there that I want to eat, not the zucchini I don't want to eat. But the thought is still nice if you put the zucchini up there. Is that what Paul says he's doing in Romans 15 is he says that he's bringing the nations, the Gentiles, as an offering. This is his priestly 
service. It's maybe the only time that in the New Testament you get a minister using the word priest in association with what he's doing. And the idea here is not that he's offering a sacrifice on the altar or something, but that the sacrifice that he's offering, the beautiful thing that he's bringing to God are the souls who have believed the gospel. Now, if you just think about futures, think about Paul's future. He thinks it's going to be one way, and then he gets beaten down by the Lord and moved into a totally different future. So when we, we're talking about open futures, we're not necessarily talking about anything that any of us in this room today or in any other room knows. That is why both positively, but also much more usually negatively, I don't like when somebody wants to tell me what the future of the church in America is. It's usually negative when they do that, but I don't like it because I don't find Paul or anyone else in the New Testament, James, anybody, saying, I know what it's going to be. They don't do the 1950s, everything's wonderful, it's so great, happy thing. They also don't do the 2020s, everything's horrible, it's getting worse, we're closing down, it's getting worse thing either. They talk about preaching the gospel. Just a little bit more on what before we talk about why. What does this open up in a person's life? And I, I just picked out three things. These are words that are largely John words. You might know that John has kind of his own vocabulary for a lot of things. So if you run through his letters, as well as his gospel, you can take these three words and kind of look through them and compare them and set the letters next to the gospel. But one of the reasons that using John, especially his gospel, can be helpful when you're trying to explain Christianity to somebody is that it's great for a beginner because it's simple and it's great for someone who's been in the faith for a long time or is recently coming back to the faith because it's profound. John is a very beautiful preacher that way. He says very, very profound things you could spend your whole life thinking about in very simple ways. So here are three things we might think about when we're trying to say to somebody, what is the hope that I have in Jesus Christ? One of them is full joy. Full joy. John actually says this several times in different letters to say that when he hears, for instance, in, this is not one that we're mostly familiar with, but 2 John and 3 John, when he talks about joy at hearing that his children are walking in the truth, it's the same joy that he talks about in 1 John when he says, the reason I made known to you the Christ that I personally know and I touched him and I felt the word of life, he's alive, is so that joy may be full. That the kind of joy that this person is looking for while he's hopeless will actually only be found in Jesus Christ. And if you don't say that to him plainly, he's not going to get it. You were looking for it in drugs. You were looking for it in whatever you were doing that has 
disappointed you, you're only going to find it in Christ. Joy, full joy, complete joy, the way you were made to find. In addition to joy, love. Now with John, usually we focus on uh, love one another. We focus on love, not in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. That's good. But the source of all of that in John, as everywhere else, is we love one another because he first loved us. So I don't really know love unless I'm using Jesus to define love. That's really important because love is one of the words that they are trying to take away from you and use for their own purposes. And by they and them, I mean principalities and powers of darkness. They're trying to take the word love away from the Bible, away from Christianity, and use it to mean every kind of perversion. And here's what's really sick. It's going to make the person who believes the lie hopeless. He will be hopeless because he was taught the wrong meaning of the word love. It wasn't defined by the cross. It was defined by his own sick desire, such as all of us has by nature. So he needs to be taught that he's going to get love from God, and that will actually satisfy. Here's a third one, and then we'll talk about why. Life. Having a life, feeling alive when you wake up in the morning, feeling more dead than alive. Life. Again, John uses simple words that people still use today. That's why it's so helpful for explaining the faith to other people. Do you have a life that you actually find worth living? Have you centered your life on something that's going to last? Is your life actually seem worthwhile to you, the way that you're living it? Life. Because not only does Christ promise eternal life, lives and believes in me shall never die, he also says that he has come to bring life and that abundantly. So not little dribs and drabs does he bring when he comes to that soul, but he brings abundance. You got the image too in Luke's gospel of Full, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Abundance of life is what he brings. So to somebody who's hopeless, what does that mean? Well, not only does he have good things for you, but he has more than you can ask or imagine. So maybe you have only started to pray. It's helpful to when with a new Christian or somebody coming back to the church, you can give them very practical, like you fold your hands and you close your eyes and then say these words. That's very nice. Generally, when you start something new, that's the kind of instruction they give you. Don't be ashamed to be too simple. But when you explain to them how to do that, you could say something like, well, you're going to pray for this, but he's going to give you more. 
or you're going to want this, but he will give you more than you need, right? Because he gives open-handedly, James says. Like he loves to just hand the stuff out, okay? Let's talk about why. Why to do these things. So this is really not as much me presenting a facet of the gospel like I just did, but telling you why you should present it to other people. Because number one, the people you may have in mind, you could think of them as they're not in the pew, but they should be. You've got their names in the directory. Or you could think of them as people that you know, but they've never been in any directory of any church. Or you could think of them as your kids or your grandkids. Is that they were not made to live off wishes. They were not made to live off wishes. But in fact, that's all they're really being fed without the gospel. The rest of it is just a wish. This is kind of a silly little example from James, but I like it because it is very familiar to us. In James's time, most people were not very busy or they didn't claim to be. They were farmers that didn't have to work at the scale that our farmers do. They had a lot of free time on their hands, a lot of free time. So they're not making big plans about everything the way that we do. And I'm not saying this to condemn anybody. I will open up my calendar on my phone if you want me to during the break, and I will show you all the stupid plans that I have. Because when James is talking to people who are busy, he talks to guys that are buying and selling for a living. He calls them merchants. And he says, you guys are always saying, I'm going to go here and do this and go there and do that. Why don't you say, God willing, comma, I'll go here or go there. Why does he have to say that? Because the delusion that busy people especially have is that their wishes are something more than wishes. And then they get to the future with all that busy stuff that they were doing, and then they realize just how light, not an anchor, not solid, not holding you, just how light all of their wishes were. So they get to the future that they've been setting up for since whatever. They started, they did, they did college prep classes. And so that has led them to this job that they envisioned 10 years earlier, whatever, right? They get there. They've got the job, they've got the salary, and what? It wasn't what they thought, but even more than that, what else? It didn't do for their souls what they thought it would. They were lacking satisfaction. So one thing you can do is just come up with bigger wishes. And the problem is, let's say that you're successful not as is common to all of us with some of our wishes, were unsuccessful and potentially bitter, but that I got what I was wishing for and then I wanted more or different. But I got what I thought I wanted and it wasn't what I now want. So they weren't really made to subsist on those things. That's why they are dissatisfied with it. This is another way of saying a certain kind of argument 
C.S. Lewis makes for Christianity. It's called the argument from desire. That if I have something in myself that is, Augustine says much the same thing, not satisfied by anything except God, then that's because it was made, my soul was made to be satisfied only in God. And that I have been trying to plug that gap with something else, either my whole life or some big part of my life, and it didn't work. So you want to proclaim the gospel to people because God has made them to be satisfied only in the good news that Jesus Christ is their sufficiency for life and for death. Nothing else is going to do. Nothing else is really going to work. They're not going to be satisfied with anything else. This should also make you realize there is pre-existent demand for the church's message Everywhere there are humans. Everywhere there are humans. Here's our second why. And this returns to something that we said in a nutshell, but we'll spend just a few more minutes on it in this session. Something we said in the first session. And I argued it negatively in the first session. I said, Paul paints such a sad portrait of his own people that if you weren't one of his own people and you heard him saying those things, you'd think, glad that's not me. Glad that's not my job. Here's the argument. And I really started thinking about this. Somebody you might be interested in, uh, especially the pastors, I would kind of recommend this book, is by a Dutchman named Stefan Pass, P-A-A-S, and it's called Church Planting in the Secular West. What's really interesting about it is he's one of the first people, because Europe is much more advanced than we are. This is really a wild thing, but New York City is vastly more religious than basically anywhere in Europe on any given Sunday. New York City, let alone where you probably live, vastly more religious so what I'm telling you is it could be a lot worse, is what I'm telling you. But Stefan Pass is one of the first people, because he's European and because he has been studying these things, to think and to actually look at some data about, well, how successful is it when somebody comes from another country and preaches the gospel in my country? Because something that the Netherlands has at this point is a fairly significant African immigrant population, mostly from West Africa. And so those guys have been trying to preach the gospel to the Dutch who don't largely go to church anymore. So how is that going? As is common with any culture where somebody from way outside is preaching to somebody inside that culture, it's not going that well. That doesn't mean those guys should just stop. It means that it would be much more powerful if somebody who were actually Dutch would be preaching the gospel to somebody else who's Dutch. And that's a little bit more positively stated what I said about Paul with his kinsmen according to the flesh. So let's be clear about what it is. If we don't care, I shouldn't wait for somebody else to care. If we don't care what is happening in the hopeless souls 
of the people that we actually live with and know and are related to, why would I wait for somebody else from very far away with many fewer resources to care? So this is kind of a great irony of the American church is that we have been surpassed per capita, not absolute numbers, but per capita, we have been surpassed by the South Koreans as a missionary sending nation. So it used to be that Americans were per capita the biggest missionary sending nation anywhere in the world. So not just numbers, like there are so many more Americans than Englishmen or Germans or whatever. True, right? And America is so much bigger and more beautiful than any other country, right? Right? True. I mean, nobody wants to go to Russia, right? Okay? But what I mean is we would send the most per capita. The South Koreans have passed us in that. Okay? So they don't have more, but they have more per Christian in South Korea. We're still sending tons of people. And we're definitely still sending tons of money overseas. Fine. What's going on at home? We're not sending very many people. I'm not entirely sure about the money, but I'm sure about the people. Lots of vacancies, even in the churches that we already have. Maybe you know this lady's name. If you don't, you should know it. It's the best Dickens novel. The novel is Bleak House. The lady is Mrs. Jellybee. Mrs. Jellybee has a bunch of children, like I do. But Mrs. Jellybee's children are unwashed and bruised, largely unlike my children. Okay? Because what Mrs. Jellybee is very involved in in Bleak House, and she's kind of a minor character, but it's a good thing to keep in mind, she's got all these kids, and when they visit her house, the kids are falling down the steps, and they're crying, and they're dirty, and they haven't had a meal in like two meal times, and so they're starving, and they're sad. Because all day, every day, Mrs. Jellybee worries about a philanthropic project that she has going in West Africa. And she writes lots of letters and gets lots of money. And she's trying to get um, settlers together to go there and found kind of a colony that will be helpful in West Africa. She's doing all this stuff. Her own kids, dirt all over their faces, crying. The visitors can't wait to get out of the house because it's just so miserable to be in the Jellybee home. great if she wants to write letters, but she also needs to wipe faces. So if we don't do that, we can't expect somebody else to come into our house and wipe off our own kids' faces. We have to do that. That's up to us. In fact, the Bible generally assumes that you are doing that. You'll notice that a lot of what Jesus teaches about love assumes that you love the people closest to you, you need to be kind of pushed to love people farther away. Think about when he teaches on prayer and he says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, like you guys are bad, awful, right? The worst, right? But you give good gifts to your children, that assumes that you're giving the good gifts to your children, most of all the gospel. 
So it would be great if somebody wants to come from another country to evangelize the people that I know, that are related to me, that I love, that I live with, but I shouldn't expect him to do something I myself am not doing. Talk a little bit about how, and then we can spend the whole question time debating the how if you want to. <clears throat> or you can suggest an idea that might be helpful to somebody else. That would be good too. Helpful to me, that would be very nice. I don't think that the how is terribly complex. And here's why. Even if churches are shrinking, even though I'm saying there is pre-existent demand in every human being you encounter. So that's like saying, I mean, not everybody knows, certainly people in Colorado do not know about Casey's breakfast pizza, right? If Casey's came to Colorado, then they would know. They don't even know that they want to eat Casey's breakfast pizza. Some of them, some, some percentage of them. Some of you are grossed out by this. Some of you love this stuff. It doesn't matter. Some percentage of people in a place where it doesn't exist might actually want it, right? I'm saying 100% of all the people in all the places that all of us live actually need the gospel. So I don't actually think it's that complex. Start by asking yourself, how do the people that I know find out about anything that they find out about? How do the people that I know or that I'm interested in knowing find out about anything that they do find out about? The absolute simplest costs zero dollars thing here is always for seemingly, according to studies that people do of these things, every church of every size is word of mouth. There's almost nothing more powerful, no matter how slick the church's website is, no matter how amazing the preacher is or not amazing, word of mouth. I'm going to defend trying to do well with the website and the preaching in a second, but I'm going to start out by telling you how relatively little it matters. Because it seems that for every church of every size, the absolute biggest way that people find out about it come to it, are instructed in it, join it, stay in it, is word of mouth. That it's much more powerful to hear from someone you know about something he cares about than by any other means. And it's going to figure largely this particular how of word of mouth into when we talk in the next session about a home, is that it's much better since they're coming into a community of flesh and blood people to come by means of hearing from flesh and blood. It doesn't mean that nothing else can happen. I myself, for example, came into the Lutheran church through Google. Thank you, Silicon Valley. Because no Missouri Synod Lutheran had ever told me, you should come to a Missouri Synod Lutheran church. Now, after I went to a Missouri Synod Lutheran church, guess what I found out? There were other people I had already known for years who were Missouri Synod Lutherans. But guess what? They never told me that. Much less did they tell me why I should also become one of them, right? 
So word of mouth is very powerful. And it also doesn't rely on the person's motivation to already be there when they first get there. They just have to know, I trust you. You're an interesting person. You have interesting things to say. I agree with you on other things that we've talked about. Maybe I should try going to this church. Maybe you're right about this, just like I think that you're right about this other thing that we talked about. So especially where you already have trust, word of mouth is very powerful. It's also a good way to talk about when Peter's talking about your talking about the faith, he says to give an answer or a reason for the hope that is within you. This is not a complex thing. Why don't you, I mean, even if you just restated to somebody the Nicene Creed, you'd be doing it, let alone if you put it in your own words. Word of mouth, very powerful. So here's a couple other things, and then we'll take a break for questions. The internet is where they already are. I don't really like it. I was born in 1828, so the internet, I don't like it. I like books. I like lots of books. I don't like the internet. This is on the internet. Gene makes a hypocrite of me. Everywhere I go, Gene is there putting me on the internet. It's horrible, but it's where people are. So this would be like arguing, well, I don't like that everybody in Athens gets together and yaks with each other about all kinds of weird ideas. Paul just goes in Acts 17, where they're already yakking about weird ideas, and he says, there was a man who was dead, but now he's alive. He was dead, but now he's alive. And some mocked him. He got rejected by some, but some believed. So if you want to be somewhere that they already are, it's actually slightly less important that you have like these big signs when you go into the building. Some churches, they have like a big sign. Maybe your church has a sign. It, it tells me in really big, almost like stop sign sized letters where the bathroom is. <clears throat> I would personally prefer to have a human being tell me that, but, but it's good information, I guess. If I was rushing in the church door, ready to go to the bathroom, now I know where it is, right? But the internet matters a lot more than that giant sign because it's where that person probably already was, especially the lower the age demographic goes, before he came to your church. So having recorded sermons, maybe even a recorded service, but certainly recorded sermons, recorded teaching, that it's clear, that it's easy to use, is an enormous priority for our churches at this point to offer hope because it's where the hopeless people already live. It may be good, it may be awful, it just is. Okay. And then kind of a last how, and then we'll tie it together. A last how is that we actually focus, and this is obviously for the ministers especially, on the quality of our preaching. The quality of our preaching. It's orthodoxy. Also, it's being presented as if it really matters. Because what you're getting when you're preaching is the capacity to speak directly to that soul for however many minutes you are using. 
Okay, In a way, and this is kind of the difference between direct and indirect like we talked about last time, yes, indirectly, everything in the service is actually not designed for the person who doesn't yet believe, but it could speak to his soul's condition. Yes, it could. But guess what? The sermon does that directly. So he doesn't have to, he's never been to church before. He doesn't have to think, boy, this intro it is just really, right? Maybe it does. Maybe he's a really bright guy and he picked up on it right away. Don't make it that hard. The sermon can speak directly. Especially when it's presented like word of mouth as of immediate, direct pertinence right there. Here's God's word for you. Here's the gospel for you directly. Why do we want to do all this? I think the thing that keeps us from maybe doing things like this is being worried about seeming foolish, primarily about being rejected, but underneath that and more broadly, seeming foolish, seeming silly, because people don't talk about stuff like this. They talk about sports or they talk about the weather or they talk about whatever, but they don't talk about matters of life and death, generally speaking. So maybe we're worried about seeming foolish or seeming too forward, or seeming awkward, or whatever. And on the one hand, that kind of makes us way too important. Way too important. As if our comfort in every situation is so much more important than the gospel. And that, I mean, when you say it that way, it's kind of obvious that that's silly, but I think that's underneath. Is that our comfort seems to us much more important than the gospel, which is why we don't really want to say it because it's going to be awkward. But I think more than that, it misunderstands what that other human being needs. Social peace or ease is nice. It's not like you need to run around just, you know, uh, you can go to a restaurant when everyone's in there, it's like five, six full and you just bang on every table and start preaching the gospel, right? Like not being awkward is actually, that's good. That's good, right? But where you do have the opportunity, you don't want to set a temporary piece of this was pleasant, but kind of meaningless. Or, well, we didn't really talk about, about what we need to talk about, but at least it wasn't weird. You're setting that temporary peace above the eternal peace and joy that they could have from knowing the gospel. And you don't want to do that. I mean, if you did it with your kids, it would be bad enough, even though you can be very direct with them. If you set anything above knowing the gospel, but if you're doing it with somebody that needs to know the gospel and doesn't, or used to believe it and now doesn't, or whatever the case may be, you're setting something that is going to go away like, you know, you're going to feel awkward for a little while. It's okay. They might reject you. It's okay. You're setting that way above what could be of eternal benefit to them. And that's really for the church to misunderstand its own future. Because the church's future, which is open through the resurrection of Christ, 
is not intended just for us to enjoy. It's intended for the whole world to enjoy. It's intended for each soul to enjoy. So when you're talking to somebody, you're not dealing with somebody who is uh, just meant for a little while. And so you can handle them and this relationship or this conversation or whatever for a little while, right? Think about the way that Paul talks about eternity in 2 Corinthians. He says, this light momentary affliction. So all this stuff that's going on in your life, including your little feeling of awkwardness as you bring this up, this light momentary affliction it's like a tent. You pack it up, you put it away. Here comes an eternal home and an eternal weight of glory. So you got to keep that in mind. You're not trying to get them ready to go tent camping in an awkward way on wet ground with you. You're trying to tell them about an eternal home that Christ has prepared for them. Let's do some questions. Okay. So he's asking about what St. Francis of Assisi probably didn't say. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Raise your hand if you've heard that. Okay. Some of you haven't heard it, and that's great. <laughs> okay. Because I think, I, think I think it's silly. Um, it's, it's just non-biblical. And, uh, but, I mean, if you, don't, if you don't really read the Bible, it's kind of nice because then you don't really have to do anything. You just have to be nice to people and that would be preaching the gospel without words. And the difficulty here is, like I said, I'm not endorsing be like banging your fist on the table to get their attention or something, but I'm saying there are things that are more valuable, particularly eternally, than a pleasant interaction. So preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words, usually seems to be kind of a... Uh, it's a way that we manage the fact that we don't really want to tell anyone about Christ. It's, it's the way that we manage it. And it, it doesn't even mean that you are necessarily going actively, like hunting people down to tell them about Christ. But even that, for instance, you work with people and they, they have no idea that you're a Christian. They know what your NFL fandom is. They know your strong opinions about how the coffee's made. They don't know that you go to church every Sunday. So it seems like kind of an unimportant part of your life. I mean, one, one sort of realization I had early after being ordained was that if I just acted with the same self-assurance that sports coaches did about church, I would get better results. And it was true. So I didn't say like, um, I didn't say to the confirmands like, <clears throat> you know, if it works for you guys, we're going to have class on Wednesday nights. I was like, classes on Wednesday nights, this is the homework. Because like the lacrosse coach was way harsher with them and got them to show up at 7 a.m. on Sundays to play lacrosse. So I was asking way less and I didn't ask their parents to pay anything. But um, you know, I think, I think that we, we're already shy for reasons that are really hard to understand and indefensible biblically. And then we use the Francis of Assisi thing, which I'm not going to blame him for, 
to justify our shyness. That they'll understand that we're Christians somehow because we're nice to them. And that's not, it's not the gospel that somebody's nice to you. It's the gospel that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. That's, that's very different from me being nice to you, even though it's nice to be nice, right? It's just not the gospel. Okay, so what if the gospel sounds to people like it is also a wish, right? High in the sky, by and by, when you die, right? The gospel is also a wish. I think that is simply a failure to understand. That's, that's a failure. I want to put the blame on myself before I put it on somebody else. So I'm not going to put it on my hearer. That's a failure of me to explain what the gospel is about. So if it sounds, if the gospel sounds like an insurance policy, then I'm, I'm saying it in the wrong way, right? I'm not explaining because the insurance policy I'm paying and then, you know, I like to, she knows this, so I'll just say this on a recording. I tell my wife, I'm so much more valuable to you if I'm dead than if I'm alive, right? <laughs> because if I die, you are good to go for a long time, right? It's a, that's an insurance policy. And the gospel sounds like that to people who believe that somehow it doesn't address anything currently in them or with them or about them that it has nothing to do with sin, that they're not currently committing sin, or that it has nothing to do with being troubled and that they could currently have peace in Christ, that like the gospel just only applies when you die. And that's a failure on my part, if that's what they think, that's a failure on my part to explain what the gospel actually is. Because it's also saying that I currently, you could, you could even just talk about present tense verbs, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ right now, not just by and by. So I think that the reason the gospel sounds like a wish is maybe, maybe we preached it as a wish, maybe, or maybe we preached it as an insurance policy. And that was wrong if we did, you know, if we did, it could also just be misunderstanding us. And it's an objection. It's kind of a Reddit atheist objection that you get to is, you know, this is just, you're afraid of dying. So that's why you're a Christian. It's your emotional weakness and inability to face the fact that we all die someday. Um, and I find that, you know, I mean, you get, you actually get atheists in, in the Psalms and the atheist is always saying what he's saying because he doesn't want to deal with the present. So then I want to bring it right back to the present and say, well, presently, you don't even measure up to your own standards, let alone God's eternal standards, but Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God. So I like to drive it back to the present, especially when atheists bring up an objection like that, because it's not that it's insincere, but he really does believe that I'm doing this because I'm like emotionally weak. So I want to make it clear to him that I'm saying what I'm saying because of what God has done in Jesus Christ, not because I just wish it were true. Um, because there's lots of other things about being a Christian in the present that are not very nice. So why would I buy an insurance policy that cost me that much? That's stupid. That's dumb, right? Other, other, yeah, one more maybe. Go ahead. How do we deal with the present? I mean, first of all, you have to be willing to be direct. 
to deal with the present. Because if you just talk about stuff that's in the future, that's fine, and it might even be true, but it's going to keep it as something like an insurance policy. So in the present, you would have to deal for you would have to deal, for example, with you would have to treat each of the things that you may know about them in its spiritual aspects, sort of the way that I talked about drug addiction in the first session, because the human being is always body and soul. So even the bot, even the things that seem just like body problems have a spiritual aspect to them. That's why the pastor visits you when they're in the hospital. It's not because he's going to set your broken leg. It's because the experience of being sick affects the human soul in a certain way. That's why the pastor goes, right? Because everything is, so you got to think, okay, what's going on with this person? So here's the spiritual aspect of, I just imagine a guy, right? Like you can sometimes tell the guy's got a big frame. He used to be fit. He put on weight because X and Y and Z happen in his life. So he feels a certain way in his own body. He can tell it by how he carries himself. And then also, okay, he was going to go to college for this, but then he kind of dropped out after two years. And now he's in this line of work, but he's been very successful. So he kind of thinks about his life in a certain way. And he's very proud of the house that he bought and the nice yard and everything and the truck that he drives. And you got to kind of think about his whole life and then think about, well, what are the spiritual aspects of that? So He's very proud of this stuff. Could this stuff easily go away because it's built on a certain line of credit that he's running or whatever the case may be. But what the thing to do is to, you kind of got to match the Bible. Read, 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 read. I mean, you can't really do any of this if you don't know the Bible. You got to match the Bible with the life and then apply the Bible to the life. And the reason that that works is because, especially with people near you, you actually know them. And that is a very powerful thing. Um, I would say that especially that, um, you know, this is, we talk about individual confession this way. I want to start talking about preaching this way because I want the preachers to take the preaching very seriously is that there is incredible power, whether it's a preacher or a friend, but the preachers do it professionally. There's incredible power in somebody actually knowing something about your life and applying God's word to it directly not like then there's a couple steps and then you figure out that's actually about you. It's very powerful for the person to preach a sermon about family and to apply God's word, not just like, do you know what you're supposed to do, but like, how is God dealing with the fact that you have failures in your family? Or how is God dealing with the fact that you need wisdom in your family? That's incredibly powerful for a person to hear those kinds of things. Yeah. So this really involves knowledge of people and then application of the scriptures to that knowledge, whether it's their sin or their trouble or whatever it might be.